Our gracious Father in heaven, oh Father, we thank you for another day of life, a day of privilege and opportunity to know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. More than this, Father, as our theme here is as a witness, we have the privilege of sharing Christ with those who know him not. So I pray that in this camp meeting you would stir our hearts, Lord, to finish the work you've given us to do and to hasten the day of the coming of Christ. May we all be ready for that day, not just ourselves, Lord, but those who are in our circle of influence because of something we let you do through us to reach them. We ask and pray these things this morning in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Our theme uh, this, the morning devotions, has been going the distance. As I've said, I hope and pray and really believe it's possible that we can be that generation that sees the Lord coming in the clouds of glory. I've modeled it after the book Steps to Christ. I say that, uh, especially this morning. Now, we've looked at uh, our first message I based on the chapter, God's Love for Man. And we talked about God's unchangeable, unfathomable love. How God loves us because of who He is and not because of who we are. And we talked about yesterday, I based it on the chapter of the sinner's need of Christ and talked about the utter fallenness of humanity, but praise God, he sent his son Jesus Christ to take humanity and become what the Bible calls the last Adam to overcome where the first Adam failed. But I don't know if you've noticed yet that neither of those chapters we've looked at takes one step to Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought about that when you go through the book. Today we're talking about what's called the first step, and that's the step of repentance. The message this morning is called A Tragic Tale from Tinker Creek. In her Pulitzer Prize winning book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, uh, Annie Dillard wrote a story or shared a story about some of the first cataract patients in Europe and America. When they first learned how to remove cataracts, and, and some of these patients, some of these people had been born blind. Some were blind from a very young age, and for the first time they could receive this surgery and see. And you would think that would just be the greatest thing in the world, but she shares in her book that this new sight experience proves overwhelming for many patients. It oppresses them to realize if they ever do at all the tremendous size of the world, it's hard to imagine for me who's always seen, they said that some of the, for example, one of the patients was asked, even after she received her sight, how big her mother was. And you might think she might attempt one of these, but she did this, because the perception was not, she hadn't realized how to perceive size and distance. And so there's this overwhelming new experience of seeing things you didn't see before. It oppresses them, she goes on to say, to realize that they have been visible to people all along, perhaps unattractively so, without their knowledge or consent. You don't have a mirror to look in. You don't know what you look like. You don't know if you have marks on your face or you're having a bad hair day or what, right? And so now all of a sudden you can see and you realize this is how I've presented myself. And these things were, were, were a little bit... Uh, overwhelming, a disheartening number of them, she continues, refused to use their new vision, continuing to go over objects with their tongues. Oftentimes a blind person will 
tell what something is by their tongues or their touch, their senses. Continuing to go over objects with their tongues and lapsing into apathy and despair. For some, changing the old habits and adapting to a new way of life was so distasteful to them that after surgery, they actually chose to wear dark glasses or in some other way cover their eyes. One post-op 21-year-old girl, in the words of Dillard, carefully shuts her eyes whenever she wishes to go about the house and is never happier or more at ease than when by closing her eyelids she relapses into her former state of total blindness. They actually chose blindness over sight because it was easier for them to keep living the way they always had. Doing the math there. The Bible tells us there's a church in the last days that's blind. It's the church of Laodicea. It's a church that describes you and me. And the Lord's counsel to that church is be zealous and repent. But there are many even in God's remnant church, who are no more willing to have their spiritual eyes opened to their own condition than were the cataract patients in Dillard's story. Notice this statement from the book Testimonies to Ministers. Even Seventh-day Adventists are in danger of closing their eyes to truth as it is in Jesus because it contradicts something which they have taken for granted as truth but which the Holy Spirit teaches is not true. Oh, I thought that was just other churches. Even God's people. You know the call to repentance has always accompanied the preaching of the gospel. John the Baptist started out by preaching repent and then pointing people to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus began his preaching ministry with the words repent and believe the gospel. The apostles' messages called people to repent. What shall we do, men and brethren? Repent and be converted. Steps to Christ tells us that repentance is the what? The first step that must be taken by all who would return to God. It's wonderful to learn and know the love of God. I know people today who want, that, that they just want to talk about the love of God. But Ellen White says in the book Steps to Christ, it is not enough to perceive the loving kindness of God. It's great that God is loving, but God is going to be loving even when people are lost. Perceiving the love of God is not a step to God. Repentance is the first step that must be taken by all who would return to God. Now, the call to repentance is only the blending of the law and the gospel. And it's unfortunate in so much of the Christian world that the law has been cast aside as something legalistic. And, I, and I'm, I'm sorry to say that it's starting to become more and more popular to say that and view that in God's remnant church. But I want you to notice what it says in the book Christ's Object Lessons here, page 128. No man can rightly present the law of God, what? Without the gospel or the gospel, what? Without the law. The law is the gospel embodied. And the gospel is the law unfolded. The law is the root. And the gospel is the fragrant blossom and fruit which it bears. And in Ellen White's 1888 materials, she makes this statement, the law and the gospel revealed in the word are to be preached to the people for the law and the gospel blended will what? Will convict of sin. God's law while condemning sin points to the gospel revealing Jesus Christ in no discourse are they to be divorced. 
because God uses them to move his people to repentance. And I want to tell you that when the law and gospel are not combined, it minimizes, it, it diminishes our view of sin and minimizes grace and the function of God's grace. I mean, what's God's grace if I'm not a sinner? If I don't see my sinfulness, you know, the whole idea of the God, it's interesting to me today because we're told that the gospel is the divine remedy for sin. And as I mentioned, much of the Christian world says, well, the law's been done away. Well, if the law's been done away, the Bible says where there's no law, there's no transgression. So what's the remedy? Suddenly the gospel is a remedy for a disease that no longer exists. Makes no sense. Ellen White quotes from a minister in her day. She starts out quoting, and then she comments in the book Great Controversy. Notice the tendency of the modern pulpit. This is modern in the 1900s, actually the late 1800s. The tendency of the modern pulpit is to strain out the divine what? Justice from the divine benevolence. We would say God's love or mercy. To sink benevolence into a sentiment rather than exalt it into a principle. We talked about that with the love of God. Love is not God's feeling about something. It's a principle. It's a choice. From the habit of underrating the divine law and justice, men easily slide into the habit of underestimating the grace which has provided an atonement for sin. And then Ellen White comments on the person she quoted by saying, thus the gospel loses its value and importance in the minds of men. The long gospel must blend. And when they do, they call us to repentance. Now, repentance is something sometimes, in fact, oftentimes we think of as what we do for God. I want you to go to the book of Acts with me, chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. You know, a lot of the things I'm sharing this week have been so foundational in my experience, and they continue to be. I remember the things that you remember learning, and you just don't lose them, because it was such an aha moment. Because I thought, repent. You know, you read these calls to repentance. Repent and be converted. Well, that sounds like something I'm doing, and it is, in part. But I want you to notice Acts chapter 5 and verse 31. Peter just mentioned Jesus who was crucified. In fact, you want to talk about conviction and conversion and repentance. In verse 30, as he's preaching, he says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. There's a little conviction. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be a prince and savior. To do what? To give repentance to Israel and... Forgiveness of sins. Repentance includes two things. Book Steps to Christ tells us it includes sorrow for sin and turning away from it. And so I've interjected there, sorrow for sin, that's God's part. I can't become sorry for sin. When we looked at the condition of fallen man yesterday, the Scripture is clear that there is absolutely nothing in us that would ever seek after God if not prompted from Him by the out, on the outside. There is no one who seeks after God, the Bible says. No, not one. And it's amazing how Paul, he's quoting, of course, when he shares that in Romans chapter 3. But it's almost as if he knows somebody might contend it. There's no one who seeks after God. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, not one. There's nothing in us. You say, but I sought after God. 
You know, I came to God. I remember that experience where I sought after. The reason you sought after God is because he sought you first. It's always the case. So before we ever even desire God, it's God who puts that sorrow for sin in our heart. What's another way of saying sorrow for sin? We're going to get flesh this out a little bit more. But when you were sorry for sin, how do you feel? Guilty. That's not a good word today, is it? I don't want to feel guilty. But let me just interject here that you feel guilty because the Spirit of God is calling you to himself. Right? God is the one who, why does Jesus make his people sorry for sin? He gives repentance and what? Forgiveness of sin. I mean, the Lord's not going to give you repentance and you're like, oh, will you forgive me? Oh, forget about it. Why would he start by giving you the sorrow for sin? Because he wants to forgive you and draw you to himself. Repentance first is that sorrow for sin that comes from God and then a turning away from it. Now, God's not going to make you turn away from sin. That's your choice. That's my choice. But we can't even do that on our own. And so, turning away from sin is our, I could say, our divinely aided part. It says in the book Steps to Christ, again, we can no more repent without the Spirit of Christ to awaken the conscience than we can be pardoned without Christ. So it's the Lord working through this process. Now the Bible tells us that true repentance includes reformation. Go with me to the Gospel of Matthew. You look at the preaching of John the Baptist. I want you to notice Matthew 3 and verse 8. In fact, we'll start verse 7, Matthew 3 and verse 7. The Bible says, But when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits, what? Worthy of, your, uh, of repentance, and do not say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to Raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And then he says, now the axe is laid at the what? At the root of the tree. The New American Standard Bible says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You know, the Bible talks about the man who sees himself in a mirror. But then he goes away and forgets what kind of man he was. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't change. Doesn't make sense that we would see our sinfulness and do nothing about it. Doesn't, doesn't make sense that we would say we're sorry for sin but not do anything to change it. I mean, if you're really sorry, there's going to be a corresponding response to that. True repentance includes reformation. Book Steps to Christ, again, page 59, says there is no evidence of genuine repentance unless it works reformation. We just... I want to tell you, we just have a habit of excusing ourselves too often. Stories told of a company that had a problem with its employees taking advantage of sick days. They'd call in sick when they weren't sick. Imagine anybody would ever do such a thing. Well, they met with the union leaders to complain and say, we've got to get this thing in, in line. We've got these employees that are abusing this privilege. And as the union, the labor union, you need to make sure you straighten these guys out. I said, hold, hold, hold on a minute. Our labor guys, they don't abuse their sick leave privileges. If they're calling in sick, they're sick. 
So one of the guys in the company says, oh, yeah, let me show you this. And he lays a paper down on the table. He says, look here. Says one of our employees just won the golf tournament yesterday. He called in sick. The union guy thinks about it for a minute and he says, man, think how good he would have done if he wasn't sick. We, we have a tendency to want to defend our actions when we know there's no defense for our actions. One of the most powerful examples of true repentance in Scripture is, is the example of David. And the story of David is fascinating. I hadn't realized this for a while. David and Bathsheba, how many of you read the story? David, the king of Israel, David takes another man's wife. And if you go and read through the story, you see that he comes to repentance. I'm going to touch on that for a minute. But what I didn't realize for the longest time, it just never dawned on me, is that an entire year had passed before Nathan the prophet came to David. And he just was okay with everything. He took another man's wife. She got pregnant. He realized that that wasn't a good thing. He'd get found out. So to cover it up, he tried to get the man to sleep with his own wife. But the man was too faithful the sermon in and of itself. And so David put him on the front lines in battle to get him murdered. Now he's not just an adulterer, but he's a murderer. And then he takes the man's wife into his palace and lives happily for the next year. As if nothing happened. You might ask yourself, how did he do that? How did he do that without his conscience bothering him? Let me be clear about something this morning. That was the practice of all the kings of the nations around them. And there are many times that you and I look at the people around us, even in the church, and say, well, they're doing it. I think it ought to be okay. It doesn't matter if they're doing it if God says you shouldn't do it. And it took a year before Nathan the prophet showed up and told David that story. And David judged in the case and said, that man ought to be punished. And Nathan the prophet said, David, you're that man. And then David saw himself the way God had seen him. That's what repentance is about. I want you to notice in Psalm 51, a couple things in Psalm 51. I'm not going to read the whole psalm. It's a, it's, a, it's a powerful psalm. I would hope you have read Psalm 51 before, but if not, this is David's psalm of repentance. Verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, our God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I want you to note that David was not just looking for an excuse. Uh, maybe that's not the right way to put it. David didn't just want God to say, Okay, your sins are forgiven. He wanted to know he was cleansed. And there's a difference. Some people just don't want the penalty or the punishment that comes with the wrong act. That was Esau's repentance. But that's not true repentance. Because a true repentance has sorrow for sin. And if you have a sorrow for your sin, you want to be free from it. Now notice what he says in verse 3. This is really fascinating to me. In verse 3 he says, For I, what? acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Now, I want, to, I want to flesh this out so you understand this, what he's saying. 
I acknowledge, what David is saying is I acknowledge my transgressions or my sins as sins. Okay? This is how we do sometimes. We, we get something brought to our attention and we say, yeah, I know I did that and I know that the church says I shouldn't. I know that some of the people in this conference don't agree with that. I probably shouldn't have done it. That's not repentance. David didn't acknowledge that somebody else thought it was sin. He acknowledged that it was sin. <laughs> that God thought it was sin. I know some people would disagree that I'm drinking my coffee now. No, God disagrees with it. And there's a difference between acknowledging that and not acknowledging that. David acknowledged that what he did was offensive in the eyes of God. In fact, if you go on here, notice, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. And that used to confuse me. I thought, what is he talking about? I mean, you're Uriah and Bathsheba, and how do he say only against God? But the point he was making is, it's not man that I've wronged, it's you that I've wronged. It wasn't that there weren't offenses to other people, but true repentance is when we come to terms with the reality that we have offended God, and offended is, to put it in a more visual way, we are the ones who drove the nail through the hand of Christ. I remember back to my own conversion. I mean, that was, the, you know, I say that. You know, our conversion, conversion is not really a one-time thing. You know that. The Apostle Paul said, I die daily. Conversion is a process that can take place over time. But there are events in different people's lives for me. I remember that first revelation to my soul that I was the one. I mean, it came vividly to my mind. In fact, I was, I, when, I, when I realized that Christ had died for humanity, and I was, re I was actually reading in great controversy, and I was reading in the context of the Jews who rejected him. And I became upset with the ignorance and the stubbornness of the Jews for rejecting him. And all the while, while I was in the midst of being upset with the Jews, <laughs> how dare they? The Spirit of God said, it was you who rejected it was you who drove the, drove the nails. It's you who's been closing me out. Oh, man, I'll never forget that. I was sitting on my sofa with my wife, and I was reading this out loud, but I just read that, and I began to weep. And she thought her husband had lost his mind. Well, I did, my carnal mind. I saw Jesus for the first time as not only the one I murdered, but the one who let me do it to save my soul. David acknowledged his transgressions before God. He came to terms. I want to tell you something else about coming to terms. I don't know what to think when I hear church members making, I don't want to say making excuses, blaming people like this. We say, you know, I know I was a sinner and I was living the way I shouldn't. But you know, I grew up in the church and they were so mean to me and it was so legalistic. Like, what are you doing throwing the church under the bus for? One thing I realized when I was converted was it's my fault. And only my fault. That doesn't mean people didn't mistreat me. That didn't mean there weren't problems in the church. But what? There are problems in the church and, and that's my excuse? No, I'm choosing. Look, the Bible says that the spirit of truth will lead anybody into truth who seeks it. Now, I don't want to totally let 
the church or leaders or pastors off the hook when they do something wrong. But when somebody says, I grew up in the Adventist church and I never knew Jesus, whose fault is that? You don't have your own Bible. You don't have access to the Holy Spirit. You don't have the Spirit of Prophecy writings. I mean, come on, we have the access. When we're blaming others, all that saying is, I've not been brought to fullness of repentance. The Apostle Paul, after 30 years of a, of a ministry, I can only wish to someday get close to. After 30 years of that kind of faithfulness said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Not used to be chief. Because he realized his own nothingness without Christ. David acknowledged his transgression before God and he wanted not just forgiveness but cleansing. Steps to Christ, page 24 says, David saw the enormity of his transgression. He saw the defilement of his soul. He loathed his sin. It was not for pardon only that he prayed, but for purity of heart. He longed for the joy of holiness to be restored to harmony and communion with God. Do you long for the joy of holiness? Do you see yourself in those moments when you're with the Lord and the Holy Spirit shines a light on those things that are still there in your life? Do you long to be free from that? Do you long to reflect the image of Jesus? That's the Spirit of God bringing you, bringing me to repentance. Book says, uh, says in, on page 25, again, steps to Christ, a repentance such as this, speaking of David's repentance, is beyond the reach of our own power to accomplish. You can't, you can't muster it up. I don't want you to get the idea, of, wow, I need to be more sorrowful for my sin. You can't muster it. A repentance such as this is beyond our, the reach of our own power to accomplish. It is obtained only from Christ, who ascended up on high and has given gifts unto men. And we're going to talk in a moment about how it's obtained from Christ. There's a lot of talk today about beholding Christ. We need to behold Christ. I was in uh, Carolina doing a camp meeting. I was talking on another topic, but I was trying to illustrate some of the, the modern compromise in the church. And so I looked up for pictures, for illustration. I wish I had, had put them on my computer here to show you this morning, now that I'm thinking about it. But I looked up pictures. I looked up, I did two search terms for pictures. One was church worship. That's what I searched, church worship. And the other was rock concert. And do you want to know something? The images were identical. I mean, one image was virtually identical. The others, they were the same. There, there's a crowd of people, there's smoke, there's people with guitars on a stage and hands up like this. Go ahead and search it. I'm not talking about, okay, when I looked up rock concert, I saw a bunch of those and I searched for a while and I found one of those when I, no, Christian worship, it's the same thing. I looked up Christian worship, I didn't see pictures of people like this, I didn't see people re with the Bible, I didn't see people Bible studying, I didn't see people preaching, it was all this, we're going to have a big band up front and we're going to be... I remember the late Pastor Tony Sregliano, he was commenting on one of these preachers once who said, you know, I was this morning, I was talking to the Lord, and he revealed himself to me while I was shaving in the mirror. And Tony, Pastor Tony said, 
you were just you were shaving and you got a you got a revelation of God and you just sat there and shaved? In the Bible, when people saw God, they fell on their faces. Even angels. John saw an angel and he couldn't stand on his feet. When Daniel saw Christ, he said, All my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. When Peter saw Jesus, the glory of Christ was revealed to him on the fisher's boat. He fell on his knees and said, depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And you're shaving? You're waving your hands and saying, this is worship. This is not worship, folks. When David in brokenheartedness fell before the Lord in repentance, that was worship. You look at the day of Pentecost, and they were weeping in repentance, that's worship. We have this idea that when Christ was revealed to us, we'll have this warm feeling and it will just be, it's not going to be that way. Let me share with you some things. The Laodicean message is a message of repentance. The book Early Writings, Ellen White says this, she shares this experience. She says, I asked the meaning of the shaking. She'd seen this, this vision of these two groups of people. One group of people was agonizing and pleading before God for light and for, for, for uh, 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 His forgiveness and His transformation. And another group was not so, she calls them careless and indifferent. And that careless and indifferent group was shaken out. She says, I asked the meaning of the shaking I had seen and was shown that it would be caused by the straight testimony called forth by the counsel of the true witness to the Laodiceans. Well, what is that? What is the counsel of the true witness to the Laodiceans? You think you're spiritually rich and you're not. He tells them their true condition. And it changes the people who hear it. It says they pour forth this straight testimony says, this will have its effect upon the heart of the receiver and will lead him to exalt the standard and pour forth a straight truth. Some will not bear this straight testimony. They will rise up against it. And this is what will cause a shaking among God's people. I saw that the testimony of the true witness has not been half-heated. The solemn testimony upon which the destiny of the church hangs. Upon what? The destiny of the church hangs on whether or not we receive this message of repentance, this call to repentance. The solemn testimony upon which the destiny of the church hangs has been lightly esteemed, if not entirely disregarded. This testimony must work what? Deep repentance. All who truly receive it will obey it and be purified. It says here that even in the last days, God's people are no more willing to have their eyes opened than the people in Dillard's book. Those cataract patients. It says there's going to be a resistance to the call to repentance. Now, why do we fight repentance so hard? Why is it that we've always got to put that blame off? I was thinking about this recently, and, and I think I, I've got at least a part of it. You know, the devil so distorted our minds, and we get so insecure. That when God comes to us and points out our sinfulness, because of the way things work in this world, and maybe the way that people do it in this world, we perceive it as, as an attack. 
When something we read or hear makes us feel guilty, we assume it's coming from the enemy and we brace ourselves to resist it. We take it as a criticism and we, we shun it. I want you to consider some things here. I was talking about beholding Christ. Notice this from Steps to Christ, page 25. One ray of the glory of God. One gleam of the purity of Christ penetrating the soul. Makes people feel lightheaded and woozy. And blissfully happy. That's what some people have told me. Makes every spot of defilement painfully distinct and lays bare the deformity and defects of the human character. Right? Because you're, you're coming closer to Christ. We're going to look at that statement. In fact, I'll save my comment until I look at that one. Now, continuing on here. It makes apparent the unhallowed desires, the infidelity of the heart, the impurity of the lips. The sinner's acts of disloyalty and making void the law of God are exposed to his sight. And his spirit is stricken and afflicted under the searching influence of the Spirit of God. He loathes himself as he views the pure, spotless character of Christ. This is what happens when we behold Christ, according to inspiration. This is the experience I had in my conversion. When you see Christ, you're just not shaving. You're just not doing this. I want to tell you, that's a false revival and emotionalism. The devil is making people think they have some kind of experience with the Lord. Now, I don't want to give you the wrong idea. Because all the while you see your sinfulness like Peter on the boat. You remember the story in Luke 5 where Peter fell down before Jesus said, Lord, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. You remember what he was doing? He was clinging. He wasn't running away from Jesus. See, the awesomeness of this blend of the law and the gospel is even when we see our sinfulness, here's the thing, when we really realize how sinful we are, because we don't naturally, and yet Jesus is still there offering us salvation. I mean, look, there are days, and I'll have to be honest with you, as a fallen human being, there are days when if God would say, hey, I'm going to save you, I'd say, well, you ought to, I'm a pretty good person. And I don't appreciate the gospel on days like that. It's when I see my utter sinfulness and brokenness and fallenness and Jesus is still there holding out his hand to me that my heart is broken. So even as we loathe ourselves, our sinfulness, we rejoice all that more in the love of Christ for our souls. This one you probably are aware of. This is a fairly common, popular statement, but Steps to Christ, page 64 and 5, says the closer you come to Jesus, the more faulty you will appear in your own eyes. She goes on to talk about how it's because we've become closer, because of, of, of the contrast that we see between him and us. And I've given people the example of, of basketball, because I'm, I'm terrible at basketball. But every once in a while, I'll go out and I'll shoot some basketball. So I'll go out and I'll, I might have a day where I'm feeling pretty good. Maybe you've done this before. And hey, I'm, I'm hitting a few. And I'm like, hey, you know, maybe, maybe I'm cured of this. Maybe I've, got, maybe I've got it down now. And some guy like Tom Hubbard shows up who knows how to play basketball. And suddenly I feel really lousy at basketball. You know what I'm talking about? 
See, you can, you can view yourself a certain way, but what, how would you expect that you would see yourself the closer you come to Christ and his infinite purity? The closer you come, the more faulty you're going to appear. This is what? This is evidence that Satan's what? His delusions have lost their power. Now put the two together. What's his delusion? When I see my sinfulness, that's an evidence he, his delusions have lost their power, so his delusion must be that I don't see my sinfulness, that I feel okay, that I feel pretty assured of myself. This is evidence that Satan's delusions have lost their power, that the vivifying, the life-giving influence of the Spirit of God is arousing you. No deep-seated love for Jesus can dwell in the heart that does not realize its own sinfulness. If we do not see our own moral deformity, it is what? What kind of evidence? It's unmistakable evidence. Sorry, it's unmistakable evidence that we have not had a view of the beauty and excellence of Christ. So, saints, here's what I want you to understand. We first have to realize that the closer we come to Jesus, the clearer our views of Jesus, the more unlike him we're going to appear, the more we're going to realize our sinfulness, not the less. This is how Jesus draws us to himself. This is how he does it. What did he say to the leaders in his day? It's not those who are well who go looking for a doctor. It's those who are sick. You know, Ellen White, even in her ministry, she was concerned that she would get too proud because of the revelation she had. And the Lord said, I'll help you stay humble by afflicting you with sickness. You're aware of that, right? The Lord, for our own good, often keeps us in a place where we know we're dependent. This is how Jesus draws us to himself. But note this, if you've missed everything else. God's call to repentance is not intended to be a criticism of our ungodliness, but an invitation to his godliness. Every time you see your sinfulness, now the devil's going to take advantage. I like to say he has plan A and plan B because we just saw his delusions are broken when we see our sinfulness. So he doesn't want you to see your sinfulness because then, oh, mercy, you might go to Christ for forgiveness. So he tries to keep you blinded to that. But there comes a point when the Lord reveals your sinfulness, so he switches to plan B, and that is, well, look how sinful you are. You can't go to Christ. But you've got to remember that I wouldn't even see my sinfulness if it wasn't for Christ, and the only reason he's showing it to me is because he's inviting me to himself. So again... God's call to repentance is not a criticism of our ungodliness, but an invitation to his godliness. The book Steps to Christ says the Spirit of God is pleading with us to seek for those things that alone can give peace and rest. Sorry, I lost my... Peace and rest. The grace of Christ and the joy of holiness... Why does he point out our sin? Because he's calling. He wants us to have something better. 
He's inviting us to something better. Through influences, seen and unseen, our Savior is constantly at work to attract our minds from the unsatisfying pleasures of sin to the infinite blessings that may be ours in Him. Praise the Lord. So listen, saints, when we feel guilty, we need to remember that we wouldn't if it weren't for the fact that the Spirit of God was arousing us and inviting us and that the Lord Jesus was wanting to save us. There's a statement from um, one of the messengers God raised up to bring a re-clarification of righteousness by faith to our people in 1888 and the after years and in the revivals of that time. One of those men is named A.T. Jones, and A.T. Jones wrote something that I have treasured ever since I first read it. I want to share it with you. He's commenting on this whole idea that we're talking about. The closer we come to Christ, the more we see our own sinfulness. And I want you to note his words here. He says, do not be discouraged at the sight of sinfulness in the flesh. It is only in the light of the Spirit of God and by the discernment of the mind of Christ that you can see so much sinfulness in your flesh. Isn't that true? Couldn't see it otherwise. Devil doesn't want you to see it. You couldn't see it if it weren't for the Spirit of God. So he goes on. And the more sinfulness you see in your flesh the more of the Spirit of God you certainly have. Huh. Ever thought about that before? It's the only way you can see it. Then when you see sinfulness abundant in you, what? Thank the Lord that you have so much of the Spirit of God that you can see so much of the sinfulness. You ever think about thanking God that you see yourself so sinful? You should. Thank the Lord that you have so much of the Spirit of God that you can see so much of the sinfulness and know of a surety that when sinfulness abounds, grace much more abounds in order that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So brothers and sisters, I, I don't imagine how you can make it through a week of camp meeting and not have some conviction of your sinfulness. As you hear different messages and you're reminded of areas in your life that aren't in harmony with God's will like they need to be, rejoice and say, thank you, Lord, for caring enough about me to draw me to yourself. And give that over to him and take that step in repentance. How many many of you want that, that, not just that forgiveness, but that cleansing? that David prayed for, that closeness to God, that experience. You want that this morning? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Father, as we've meditated upon these things today in your word, as we thought about your work in our lives of of bringing us to repentance and moving us to turn from our sin, it's not a human work, Lord. It's not something we can do for ourselves. And it's something the enemy so wants us to think is an attack to keep us out of heaven instead of an invitation to get us in. Father, this morning I just want to thank you that your spirit bears long with us and that even as we so often want to resist your drawing power, oh Lord, help us to be drawn to the foot of the cross in repentance that we may be cleansed and glorified 
and rejoice one day very soon at your coming and in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. For we ask and pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.